following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. It's great to see everyone. Um, had a really great time at Austin last weekend. Uh, first time being in Texas, a very interesting place. Uh, worked, uh, the conference was largely to college students, and so it's just exciting to be around college students again. I sort of forgot how hungry they are and naive they are, and um, you know, it's all about what God's will is for my life and all this exploring that they want to do. And so it was very rejuvenating for me to be around undergrads again. Um, had some amazing Texas barbecue while I was out there. Uh, I think it's probably the best brisket I've ever eaten in my life. I've never had brisket quite like that that just melts in your mouth. So uh, had, a, had a very good time. I, um, I, if I could also just say a word about that baptism service that was announced by Pastor Reggie. It will be next week, and I know it's in the afternoon. It's probably not convenient for a lot of you, and it's in another remote location. And I, I really want to urge upon you to come and be a part of that, if at all possible, because there are a lot of churches that will sort of do baptisms sort of as a side service just for your friends and family and baptize like that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I, we've talked about that, that should we just do that, you know, just, just have your inner circle come and witness your baptism. But I, I, I really resisted moving in that direction because I think there's something important for us as a church family to witness together and be a part of that together. I, I think to do it as a private act sort of violates the very essence of baptism, which is a public de- declaration of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so, um, again, next service is that baptism, and uh, although it is in the afternoon in another site, really want to encourage you to be a part of it. Every time I see a baptism or be a part of a baptism, my own faith, I think, is really stirred as I see others uh, who are coming to the faith and making professions of Jesus Christ. And I, I believe the same will happen to you as you come and hear the stories of what God has done in people's lives next week. And so we'd really encourage that. I'm also so thankful that Aram and Sarah are able to join us. And I think he's doing a child duty with Zeke or something. Right? He's trying to get him to preach today, but you know, he said maybe next time. So I think uh, on their next visit, Aram will preach for us. And uh, have the privilege of hearing the word from him once again, but so grateful to be able to see him this weekend. Um, The text for our morning is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, and the title of the message today is The Right Fear, The Right Fear. And it reads, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we do each week, we come to you and ask for your help to enable us to understand the truth found in your words. And may those truths weigh heavy in our hearts and bear a fruit um, that would demonstrate you alive in us and the change that is happening in our lives every single day because of what Christ means to us. And so we pray that the power of the Word and the power of your Spirit would do its work in our hearts so that we might be changed and be new people. And uh, we just really ask you, Father God, that uh, you would help us to understand the weight of these words and to really acknowledge um, what it means to live a life fearing you more than we fear those around us. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Florence Foster Jenkins was born in 1886, the daughter of a very wealthy banker in the Pennsylvania area. And ever since she was a little girl, her life's dream was to become a professional singer. So she begged her father to send her to Europe where she could study under the masters and become a famous opera singer. But neither of her parents were really into the arts and they didn't get it. And so her father absolutely refused her. Well, going against her father's wishes, she headed out anyway to try to pursue her dream of music. And so cut off from her father's wealth, for many years Florence struggled just to make it through the day and survive. She would teach piano lessons on the side just to put food on the table. Um, what happened, though, with Florence was that eventually, many years later, her father passed away. Uh, not long after, her mother passed away as well. And suddenly, Florence found herself the sole heir to her entire family's fortunes. And after years of struggle, Florence was finally able to pursue her life's passion to become a world-famous opera singer. And that happened at the age of 40, when she finally had the money and the connections that she needed to realize her dream. Now, I want to say this. The story of Florence Foster Jenkins ought to be an inspirational one about the triumph of the human spirit overcoming all kinds of adversities to realize our dreams. There's only one problem with this story. And I want to actually play for you um, one of Florence's favorite pieces that she used to sing called Adele's Laughing Song, which comes from Johann Strauss's operetta uh, Die Fledermaus, which is translated in English, The Bat. This is Florence singing. Oh. 
as it is to comprehend, Florence was clueless to the fact that she had absolutely no sense of tone or pitch or tempo. In fact, Florence went through her life thinking that she was one of the great vocalists of her generation. In fact, she often used to host these lavish parties where she would gather all of the upper-class society of New York to her house. And she would perform one song after another. And witnesses to those events would tell that they were stifling laughter as much as they could. They wanted to crack up and laugh at her. But out of politeness, tried their best to suppress their laughter. And then after she would be done with each piece, everyone would uproariously applaud her, really mocking her. But she never really got the mockery part of it. In fact, she was so horrible that she became famous. And believe it or not, one day she actually became so famous that they booked her at Carnegie Hall. The event sold out almost instantly. Even to date, it's one of the highly, most highly attended musical events ever recorded in Carnegie Hall's history. And as Florence went through her repertoire, the boisterous audience began to hoot and holler and laugh. Some people were laughing so hard that they almost needed medical assistance getting out of the auditorium. But Florence, believe it or not, interpreted all of that that she was hearing from the audience as enthusiasm for her performance. Well, the delusion of her greatness was finally burst was shattered, in fact, the following day when she read the New York newspapers reviewing her performance. And in that moment, Florence realized that she was the butt of one of the biggest jokes probably imaginable in U.S. history. Five days later, Florence had a heart attack. And she would die one month later. According to the L.A. Times obituary, recorded as dying of, quote, a broken heart. Now, it's tempting to dismiss Florence Foster Jenkins as just a one-in-a-million case of a person that is so completely deluded, so completely blinded by the power of self-deception that it's historic, it's epic. But I don't know, any of you who are fans of re these reality TV music competitions like American Idol and X Factor know that Florence is not alone in her experience of this. Anyone remember this guy, William Hung? She bangs, she bangs. I, just, I can still hear it in my head. Let's be honest here. 
Some of the con- contestants are just pulling our legs, right? They, they want their 15 minutes of fame, and they know they're bad. But what's probably more disturbing are how many contestants actually genuinely think that they're good singers. And when the judges rake them over the coals and ridicule them, they are in genuine distress and confusion as to why their greatness is not recognized. As the saying goes, the worst lies are the ones you tell yourself, isn't it? The last message, we explored this issue of hypocrisy as Jesus confronts the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day who had a reputation for being the most devout Jews of all of Israel during Jesus' days. They would go to unbelievable lengths to demonstrate their devotion to God. And we looked at some of that, right? Particularly the way that it was highlighted was their tithing. God required 10% of everything. And so the average Jew would just tithe from their crops when the harvest season came. Or they would give a tenth of every animal that they owned. And yet they would go over the top and tithe everything. So that even when they were preparing a meal and they were plucking the mint leaves or the dill or whatever it was, they would be sure to separate one-tenth of all of that so that they could tithe it to God. And they made sure that everybody saw all of it because they were devout. They were righteous followers of God. And yet, as Jesus pointed out, in the eyes of God, none of that had any value. It was all just for show. It was all just to make themselves look better than they really were in the eyes of others. Outwardly, they looked so pious, but inwardly, they were filled with pride and greed and lust and all kinds of other sins. And so Jesus described them like cups that were washed on the outside, but were inwardly filled with all kinds of disgusting residue. And the point is, what's the point of cleaning the outside when the inside is what's really important? When you talk about cups, we said also the, they were obsessively washing their hands because they couldn't wash the stain in their heart. They were compensating for what they couldn't do inwardly by these outward religious acts. And it's tempting to, I think, portray these Pharisees as men who were somehow fully aware of their hypocrisy, who, who knew that they were phonies, And they were just deviously plotting their next move of how they can deceive people into thinking that they were holy people. But, you know, in truth, I suspect that instead they were actually as guilty of deceiving themselves as they were of deceiving other people. I think in their heart of hearts, these Pharisees genuinely believed their own lies, giving themselves far more credit than they deserved, believing that God was happy with them. I, I don't think that these were just wicked men who knew they were phonies. I think they were lying to themselves. The prophet Ezekiel describes this kind of self-deception that is, in truth, alive in all of us. All of us are vulnerable to it. He says in Ezekiel 33, verses 31 to 32, My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but do they, they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them 
into practice. In essence, Ezekiel is saying to the Israelites, you nod your heads and you say amen. And you fool yourselves into thinking that you actually agree with the message that you're hearing, when in truth you have absolutely no intention of living according to it. Listening to these sermons from these prophets like Ezekiel, in other words, was like listening to your favorite love songs on the radio. You know, at the moment you say, oh, I really love this one. Could you do it again? You love the teaching. But the truth is, it doesn't make any real difference in your life. You're going to live your life the way you're going to live your life. So Jesus warns his disciples in verse 1 of our passage He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. As I pointed out in the last message that I preached, the Pharisees make such easy targets, don't they? Um, And I doubt that many of us, when we read through the Gospels, really relate to them. I also suspect that despite whatever insecurities or guilt that you carry around with you, I would argue that probably hypocrisy would not be very high on that list of things that you feel guilty about. I mean, if I were to just corner you and blindside you and say, are you a hypocrite? I don't think there's this gut-level reaction that many of you have. Go, you, you found me, you know, like I'm exposed. I think probably there would be a lot of resistance. Like, Why are you calling me a hypocrite, you hypocrite, you know? That's the normal reaction to being called a hypocrite, right? is who are you to throw stones? What makes you better than me? I don't think that label hypocrite really sticks to most of us. And I think there's a problem in that dynamic because the truth is that hypocrisy is a real threat to every one of us. And hypocrisy is a real threat because all of us care about how others view us a lot more than we're willing to admit. Isn't that the truth? We all act like it doesn't matter. Oh, I don't care what other people think. We all like to think of ourselves as our own person, you know? I mean, I don't bow to peer pressure. I don't care what others think of me. But that's a lie. That's a lie. All of us care about our reputation. All of us care what others think of us, whether we can admit it or not. And that is why hypocrisy is a very real danger to every person in this room, including myself. I want to illustrate this by this showing you a brief video clip um, from this channel. I, it's, it's a European channel. So I, I don't know how many people have seen it, but there's a show called uh, Would You Fall for That? And I don't know how many people have seen it, but it's basically a television show that's like a social experiment in which they replicate experiments that were done in previous generations uh, like in the 1940s and 50s, and they try to see, you know, would people today in our day, Americans, fall for that in the here and now? Or are we more sophisticated, and have we gone beyond those kind of things? And so I just want to, you to watch this elevator experiment, and then we'll go on from there. If you watch the whole show, it's frightening, person after person eventually conforming and turning. Of of course, I know you wouldn't have turned, but these silly people turn. It's funny, at the very end, they try to see how far they could press it. And instead of everyone facing the back of the elevator, they actually have everyone dancing. And they say, no one would actually dance, would they? And this guy's looking around, and he starts going like this. (laughs) And they actually show him dancing. 
And then when he gets out of the elevator, they interview him and say, yeah, why did you dance? And you know what he said? He said, oh, uh, I love dancing. And so I felt like dancing. Of course that's why he danced, right? It had nothing to do with the peer pressure that he felt of the fact that everyone else is dancing. Jesus uses this interesting metaphor to describe hypocrisy. He calls it leaven. Leaven. As you know, leaven, <clears throat> leaven uh, is an agent, usually yeast, uh, that you add to dough to cause it to rise. And you work the leaven into the dough, kneading it until it becomes impossible to separate the dough from the leaven. It's all mixed in as a single substance now. And you cannot even tell that the leaven is there until a couple hours later what happens. You start to see the dough rising. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is hypocrisy works in the same way. It's hard to know when the shift begins to happen, but it's subtle. And eventually, when maybe in the beginning of your spiritual life journey, you're doing things for God, you eventually start doing things because of the way it looks to other people. And the problem is, when that shift subtly begins, you can't tell the difference. The outward behavior looks exactly the same. It's a transaction that's happening invisibly in your heart. But little by little, that shift continues. And it begins to poison everything you do. Until eventually, you come to realize that everything you do is for the eyes of others. And the ultimate end game of hypocrisy is that God becomes unnecessary to the equation of your religious activities. He's, he's an unnecessary element. He's not an important part of the equation anymore. He just becomes a symbolic figurehead. Outwardly, you give recognition to him, but the real motivation that drives everything you do is how good you look in front of other people. It's all about your reputation, what others think of you. Commenting further on this idea of hypocrisy, Jesus warns his disciples in verses 2 to 3, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. That word that Jesus uses, private rooms, is an interesting one. It, what, it, what he was referring to is that in these Jewish houses in those days, most Jews kept this room in the middle of their house. It was basically a storage room. And the reason why you would put it in the middle of your house is because you put all your valuable things in there. And so in order to prevent access to thieves who could burrow under the house or knock out a window and get in and steal your stuff, you would put it in the center of your house. But interestingly, that room also, they discovered, became very convenient to have private conversations. It became like a secret room. You could do stuff in there because there were no windows. Nobody could eavesdrop. No one could know what was going on inside that room. And in essence, then, what Jesus is saying is, you know what? We have private rooms in our heart as well. We have these walled-off areas that we don't let anyone else into, and we don't show to other people. 
Um, in essence, I think what Jesus is implying is the hypocritical life is a double life. We have a public life of a very carefully managed public image that we show to others. And then there's a darker private life where the lights never come on, that we keep hidden from others. This is the stuff we bury. This is the stuff that we're not willing to confess to or admit. This is the stuff that festers in our heart, unacknowledged. And I think one of the problems when we begin to live this double life is that we begin to measure ourselves by a distorted measuring stick. Because what we begin to measure ourselves by is what that public image is, not by what is really going on inside our heart. And the problem with that is that public image is a distortion of who we really are, isn't it? It's not the real us. It's a fake us that we project to others. But like I said at the beginning, you tell this as a lie to others, but eventually you tell the lie to yourself. And you say, that is me. That guy is who I am. And the truth that God would say is, that isn't really you. We can't really know the real you until we begin to open some of those private rooms and see what's going on that no one else can see. You see, when you start to live hypocritically, you define your problems not by the bad stuff you do, but by the bad stuff you get caught doing. That's what really matters in your life. If no one knows about it, if I can keep getting away with it, then what's the problem? It's not a big deal. And I think all of us can acknowledge that the shame of being caught or exposed doing something is often far more terrifying than the private guilt of the sin itself. You know, the exposure is what frightens us, not the guilt itself. And, you know, let me just speak as your pastor. I've come to realize after decades of pastoral ministry that typically a person has to get to really rock bottom, to a pretty low point in their life before they'll seek my help as their pastor. And the reason why they do that is because they have to realize that their situation is desperate enough to warrant exposure because in that meeting when they finally come clean and tell me what they're privately struggling with, you see that inner struggle in their heart going, I don't want to be exposed. I, I still want you to respect me. I mean, I have to see you every weekend. And if you know this about me, then I don't know how I'll ever be able to look you in the eye again if you really knew. You see, that shame of exposure becomes such a powerful force that is wielded in our hearts that we would rather do everything to protect ourselves from that exposure than to deal with the true root of the problem, which is the sin that is raging privately within. But what Jesus warns us is that a day is coming when those walls that separate our public image and our private life are going to be shattered. It's going to be torn down. A day is coming, Jesus says, when everything will be revealed, when the light of truth will shine in those places of darkness where we tried to keep things hidden, when the things that were whispered in our secret rooms will be shouted from the rooftops. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see, what, what Paul is saying is, is none of us really knows each other as well as we think we do. I mean, we all are walking around with certain reputations, some better than others. Some are faring better than others in this whole game of, you know, image-making, right? But what Paul is saying is, is, you know, you can't judge a person until you can bring the heart into the scene. And none of us really knows, you know, what's going on in the heart. But Paul does say, that day is coming when the light will shine on everything and will really understand where every person stood in that final judgment. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. It kind of puts it in a very interesting way, doesn't it? He's saying, listen, for some of you, you didn't have that luxury of hiding. You know, everyone knows about what you did. It's all there for people to see and snicker at and gossip about. But the sins of some of you, nobody knows. And we're all going to be shocked when that day of judgment comes. And in that way, if you sort of think about it, which group would you rather be in, honestly? Which camp would you rather fall in? I think all of us, in truth, would rather be in the second camp. But in a lot of ways, I think there's something to be spoken for being in the first camp, isn't there? Because when you're in that first camp, there's nothing to hide. You've been exposed. There's no point in pretense or trying to act like something better than you're not. And in that way, it frees you. It frees you to say, you got me. I'm guilty. What I need is the grace of God. But some of you who have never been exposed and who are still with great effort curating an image of yourselves, that day of judgment may be a very frightening day for you when the heart is revealed behind all the acts of righteousness that you were performing. Jesus continues in verses 4 to 5 of Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do to you. But I warn you, uh, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, a lot of people read these words and mistakenly think that Jesus is referring to Satan. But the Bible never tells us that Satan has authority to cast anyone in hell. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that God alone holds that authority. The point that Jesus, I think, is making in saying these words is the fundamental problem with hypocrisy is that you're playing to the wrong audience. You're playing to the wrong audience. You're so worried about what other people think of you, how they judge you. But at the end of your life, their judgment doesn't count for anything. It doesn't. On that great judgment day, they're going to stand in judgment along with you. They have nothing that they can contribute or take away from your testimony. You're playing to the wrong audience. You're trying to earn their favor, trying to get them to think good of you, when at the end of the day, their assessment 
doesn't really matter. In fact, even your own assessment of yourself doesn't really matter. Do you realize that? I mean, you may think, yeah, what do I care what other people think? I just care what I think about myself. Well, what the Bible says, even that doesn't count. Because you don't even have the luxury of being your own judge. You don't get to weigh your own life and say, well, I think I lived a good life. (laughs) So there. What Jesus is saying is, there's only one judge in all of creation, and it's God himself. So live your life before him. Fear the Lord, because he he alone is the one that will stand in judgment of your life. This is the same truth with which we concluded our last series, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 to 14 says, Now all that has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. In other words, the ultimate answer to hypocrisy is to fear God more than we fear others. In other words, Jesus is calling us to place our fear in the right place. Now, I think we're living in a time when talking about fearing God doesn't go over very well, not only for those outside of the church, but I would argue even for Christians. This is not the vocabulary that's popular in our modern church today. We love to talk about the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, and the love of God. And these are very, very real and powerful expressions of the heart of God. But the second you start talking about fearing God, I think for many of us, it begins to conjure images of primitive religion. Like when people ages ago, every tragedy that would happen would be attributed to some punishment from God or the gods. Or it smacks of religious cults and religious movements that use fear and coercion to try to control people. I would also argue that this is particularly sensitive for anyone who grew up under abusive parents. And the very notion of fearing God just rubs us the wrong way because it immediately opens up again those wounds and reminds us of the baggage of being afraid of our parents who would beat us, punish us excessively and and unnecessarily. I am very sympathetic to some of these thoughts. But there is just too much evidence of this message of fearing God in the pages of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, to just disregard it as an expression of primitive religion. And I would argue that there is a proper and healthy way to understand a reverential fear of God. In these verses, that follow, Jesus points to how God isn't just a divine judge, but he is also there to help us. If you look in the next verses, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Here he says, don't fear. And just earlier he said, fear. This is sort of the mixed up picture that we need to keep tension in our hearts, is that when it says fear God, it's not just God with a stick hovering it menacingly over it. I just dare you to do something worthy of punishment, and he just wants to whack us. 
That's not, or he's not this divine policeman who's just waiting to bust us. He's saying part of God's sovereign care over us is he's going to protect you and watch over you and love you. But there is also an aspect of that sovereign care that has to be expressed in our relationship with him as this reverential fear that he is God and I am not. I think C.S. Lewis captured this fear well in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that comes out of the Narnia Chronicle, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, where he uh, paints this fantasy land for children called Narnia. And the king of Narnia is this lion king named Aslan. And the children that end up in Narnia are getting ready to meet uh, Aslan, and they have a conversation with Again, it's fantasy, so they're talking with the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, okay, which are, you know, talking animals. Uh, but this is the conversation that they end up having prior to meeting uh, Aslan. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I am to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver, Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I think in that little exchange, uh, Lewis captures so well this distinction that every Christian needs to make between calling God good and calling Him safe. Because He is good, but He is not safe. He is the Lord of this universe, the King of kings, and He holds the power of life and death within His hands. The final point that Jesus makes is this, that God's judgment is completely based on how we respond to Jesus Christ. In verses 8 to 10, it says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, I acknowledge these words are pretty confusing. What does he mean by if I deny the Son, I'm okay, but if I deny the Spirit, then I'm in big trouble, and that becomes an unforgivable sin? Well, what most New Testament scholars tell us is that the way they explain it is like this. In the days of Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, there were all kinds of people that were confused about his identity and trying to figure out who he is. And some were saying he is from Beelzebub, he's from Satan. Others were saying he's the prophet Elijah. There was great confusion because, in truth, very few people knew that he was the Messiah. Very few people during his earthly ministry understood that he was the Son of God. 
because he actually wasn't all that public about declaring it. It's what in theological terms is known as the messianic secret. Jesus wasn't really forthright about it. So he's saying, listen, whatever is being said about me right now, you know, this is just a season that we're in. But you know, when I die and I resurrect and I go to be with my Father, the Holy Spirit will come and give testimony of who I am. And in that moment, if you reject the invitation of the Holy Spirit to believe in me, at that point, then judgment falls on you. In other words, by what basis will God judge us? It will not be by our works, by how good a life we've managed to live. It will not be based on the public reputation that you managed to nurture your entire life to fool others. It'll simply be this. What did you do with my son? Did you believe in the work that he did on your behalf? That'll be at the end of our lives the only thing that ultimately matters the way that God will judge us. You know, as we look at this story, and I'm just going to wrap up here, I think there's a sense in which you can sort of look at this passage and say, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if this paints God in the best light. It, it actually kind of makes me feel a bit, bit uneasy about God because, in essence, what you're saying is, on that final judgment day, He's going to drag me out there and... I'm going to have to stand naked in front of the whole rest of the world and he's going to basically trot out everything I've ever done and he's going to humiliate me. He's going to ridicule me. What kind of a future is that to look forward to? I mean, who wants that and what kind of a God does that? I mean, what kind of an abusive God would make me have to do that and beat me down like that before I could enter into his heaven? And that's one way to view it. But I want to offer to you that in that exposure, maybe the very answer to the thing that every single one of us longs for more than anything else in life, which is this, to be fully known and yet fully accepted. And I think that's the gospel message. Is, and I've said this many times before, when you go through life long enough and you enter into adulthood, probably starting from early childhood, that's one of the deepest lessons that you learn living in a broken world is I cannot have both. I have to pick one or the other. Either I could be fully accepted, but then I have to hide these things that are embarrassing that people would reject. So I can hide and be accepted, or I could be exposed and rejected. Because if people really knew the dirt in my heart, they really knew the garbage, the things I struggle with inwardly in my private rooms, no one could accept me. No one could accept that. And so you figure this out early in life, don't we all? You got to manage your image. You got to expose and confess and reveal strategically, just enough to look authentic but not enough to cause people to turn their head away from you in disgust. But I think one of the things that that great judgment day represents is to be fully naked, fully exposed, and yet to hear those words from God, and yet fully accepted, fully loved, fully cherished. In other words, God doesn't enter us into heaven with his eyes half closed 
in this conspiracy of a lie. He says, listen, Jesus Christ paid for it all. And so you come into my eternal rest knowing that I know and I see and I saw everything. And yet I accept you and love you nevertheless because of what Christ has done for you. Tim Keller puts it like this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Let's pray. I think why hypocrisy becomes such a great temptation in our lives is because that is, in its essence, the hunger of every human heart to be accepted, to be loved. And yet, somewhere in the course of dealing with other people, we come to learn that the more that we reveal about ourselves, the more weakness we show the more embarrassing moments we have to go through, the harder it is for people to really accept us. This is so often why marriages, I think, fall apart, is when all of our warts are exposed to our spouse, we have such a hard time accepting the other person in all of their flaws. This is why friendships fail. This is frankly why I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in churches, is we all agree to play this game of a lie so that somehow we can stay together as a community. But the true community of God is a community of the forgiven who are willing to acknowledge, I am guilty. You have no idea how guilty I am. You see, the church is not about a bunch of people who think that they're better than everybody else. That's not what church is. The church is simply people who recognize, man, I am such a failure. You have no idea the depths to which I have failed in my life. Failing as a husband, as a father, failing as a friend, failing as a son or a daughter. I fail all the time. But in that failure, in my misery, I have found an answer outside of myself, greater than who I am. I found the answer in Jesus Christ, who took my shame upon himself when he was nailed naked to that cross. And all the shame that I deserved, he took upon himself. And in that free gift, I find freedom. That I don't have to put my head down in shame, feeling inferior to everyone else. But I can let my heart sing the true joy of what my Savior has done for me. That's what the church is, brothers and sisters in Christ. Not a bunch of pious people who think that they're more righteous than others. We come together, the community of the guilty, the community of the forgiven, the community of the saved, to sing praises to our God and say, God, you are great. In my weakness, you are strong. In my guilt, you are pure. And I thank you for what you have done for me. So as our worship team gets ready to lead us in a time of closing, 
through singing and prayer. Can I just invite you to maybe make that prayer yours today? God, I'm so sick of trying to manage this image to other people. So sick of always being so obsessed with worrying about what other people think of me. Help me to live for the audience of you alone. Help me to locate my fear in the right place to the only one that has the right to judge my soul. And as I stand before you, my judge, I hide behind the shadow of that cross because I know standing by myself naked, I could never stand under the fiery eyes of your judgment. But because of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I can stand unashamed before that throne of grace and approach you unafraid as my Father. Would you just pray that for a few minutes?